Welcome to the fourth episode of the Rehab Cast. Maybe we're finally getting rolling here. We're enjoying your feedback and definitely appreciate everybody who's sharing the podcast. If you're using Apple Podcasts on that app, there's a little ellipsis in the bottom right-hand corner. You can hit that and easily email or message this episode to anybody you like. I encourage you to do so. Rehabcast is now on Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Apple. Let me know if you want us to feed the show to any other platforms that you use. You can certainly email me at docvox at gmail.com or tweet at me at fordvox. And of course, tweet us at archivespmr. We're counting down to the annual American Congress of Rehabilitation and Medicine Conference here in Atlanta this October. The city's I-85 bridge is back in action after burning down, so I think we can handle the traffic, but you should still probably stay at the Hilton. We've lined up an amazing roster of leading lights in rehabilitation. They include Gary Ulickney, Maurizio Corbetta, Josephine Briggs, James Rimmer, John White, Stephen Wolf, Julie Silver, Stephen Kirschbloom, Anne McKee. Just so many great people that are pushing our field ahead. I really hope you can attend. In this episode, the July edition of RehabCast, you're going to hear from William Niehaus of the University of Colorado. He's joining us to talk about the new charity clinic that he and his colleagues in Denver have launched there. It's called the Rehabilitation Services Volunteer Project, or RSVP. And while we're at it, we're going to be delving into Bill's new paper in the Purple Journal, PM&R, a fascinating window into medical informatics. And our featured article is the first publication exploring exoskeletons in the MS population. Dr. Alan Kozlowski of the Mary Freebad Rehabilitation Hospital in Michigan led that study, and he's going to be joining us. But first, the news. So check out the July issue of the journal Stroke from the American Heart Association for an important advance from Washington University in St. Louis. It's always great to see top-notch rehabilitation research spreading to the more general journals. These publications help lift the field as a whole. And in this case, you can easily see why Stroke wanted this paper from a team that included biomedical engineers David Bundy and Daniel Moran, PM&R physician T. Husky, and neurosurgeon Eric Luthart. Their study deploys an EEG-based brain-computer interface that's controlling an exoskeleton that opens the paretic hand in chronic stroke patients. And what's really fascinating here is the device is picking up the brain signal to move from the contralesional motor cortex. That's right, it's using activity from cortex that's opposite to the hemisphere with a stroke. The healthy brain that's on the same side of the body as the weakened extremities actually has some uncrossed motor connections that remain preserved after a stroke. Dr. Luthart's lab has repeatedly shown that these pathways are accessible to a BCI system and thus might prove useful, including a 2012 proof-of-concept paper that was published in the Journal of Neural Engineering. Now, with 10 subjects who were all at least six months post-stroke, the WashU team proved that they were able to move the Action Research ARM test score with their iconoclastic BCI system. Stroke survivors who used the system, called IPSAHAND, uh, really felt like their affected arm uh, was more able to move due to the treatment and uh, that they were using it more. Now, mind you, this research line is contradictory to most of what's out there, including some devices that are coming on the market, like Recoverix from GTEC. That's an EEG-controlled FES. For another example, I participated in a multi-center trial of TMS for post-stroke arm recovery, where we were using an inhibitory frequency on the contralesional cortex, the concept there being that the good hemisphere actually holds back the injured hemisphere. So there's good basic science research to suggest that that's the case. 
But I ultimately think that what we're going to find is that uh, selecting which strategy to use will be a matter of kind of different strokes for different folks. And hopefully we'll have a plethora of choices. Patients whose strokes damage too much of their injured hemisphere's motor cortex to be able to use any type of BCI therapy will definitely need something like the WashU system. And who knows, ultimately some people may benefit from both types of systems. By the way, the WashU system is going to be commercialized by St. Louis-based Neurolutions, so any private capital analysts listening might want to get on that right now. Turning now to news in the concussion world. The Fifth International Conference on Concussion and Sport has published its report in the journal BMJ. And that follows an important JAMA paper that published in December on early physical activity after acute concussion in children and adolescents. That paper from the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario Research Institute focused on children and teens aged 5 to 18 and showed that the expert opinion that advocates completely powering down after a concussion until symptoms are resolved is probably flawed. The study looked at thousands of kids who filled out surveys about their activities at one week and then one month after concussion. Even though about half still had symptoms from their concussion, about 70% of kids returned to some form of physical activity within that first week. And even though they were doing things like walking, cycling, and running drills, or even full contact practice, those kids who were back at it in the first week were 11% less likely to still have symptoms of their head injury a month later compared to kids who remain laid up. The uh, so-called cocooning advice, uh, which now appears flawed, was codified most recently in the 2012 guidelines from the Concussion and Sport Group. These 2017 guidelines incorporate the evidence from this and other studies that are indicating that our behaving as if a concussion is a mortal wound may not be the best strategy for curtailing post-concussive symptoms. The group acknowledges that prescribed rest until the patient becomes symptom-free has been one of the most widely used interventions. The guideline now states that there is currently insufficient evidence that prescribing complete rest achieves these objectives. After a brief period of rest, during the acute phase of just 24 to 48 hours after injury, patients can be encouraged to become gradually and progressively more active while staying below their cognitive and physical symptom exacerbation thresholds. That's activity uh, levels that uh, should not bring on or worsening their symptoms. Uh, it is reasonable for athletes to avoid vigorous exertion while they are recovering. The exact amount and duration of rest is not yet well-defined in the literature and requires further study. other concussion news, Tom Brady's wife, Giselle Bunchen, made quite a disclosure in a recent Charlie Rose interview. Your husband said the other day that you wanted him to retire. He said that, not me. You know, the thing is, and, I have and to And that tell you. he was going to play as long as he felt as good as he does now. Yeah, yeah. Are you trying to get him to retire? You know, I just have to say, as a wife, I'm a little bit, you know, it's, as you know, it's not the most like, um let's say, an aggressive sport, right? Football, like he had a concussion last year. I mean, he has concussions pretty much. I mean, we don't talk about it, but he does have concussions. And it's, I don't really think it's a healthy thing for your body to go through like a, you know, through that kind of aggression, like all the time, and that could not be healthy for you, right? And then I'm planning on having him be healthy and do a lot of fun things when we're like 100, I hope. Notice how comfortably Giselle is speaking there. 
Why do I trust her more than the Patriots and the NFL? Uh, both of those organizations denied that Brady had been diagnosed with a concussion last year. One problem is the wordplay. It's hard for anyone to diagnose a player's concussion if that player doesn't have obvious symptoms before the cameras and perhaps chooses not to disclose their symptoms to trainers and doctors. All contact sports, not just football, remain in a bit of a pickle since the science is showing us that any head injury severe enough to cause any symptoms, even very transient symptoms, is causing brain damage at a microscopic level. It's totally unclear how many hits you might need to get before you're at risk of developing a congenitive condition like CTE later in life. You know, ultimately, it's going to be a big societal decision over an epoch of time as to whether we're okay with our modern-day gladiators sacrificing their brains, just as we've always known them to sacrifice their shoulders, knees, backs, and hips. What about the healthcare policy news? Well, it's still the AHCA, which we thought died an embarrassing death in the House. It's been brought back due to an insistent White House and a determined Republican House leadership. So House Republicans voted for the bill without scoring from the Congressional Budget Office, and now that office has released its report and we can see why. So 23 million more people are gonna be uninsured in 10 years and 14 more million without insurance next year alone if this bill actually made it through. So naturally, uh, everyone expects the Senate is gonna fully re-engineer the bill, but their work is happening behind closed doors, just like the process in the House. It's very disheartening to see important public policies rolled out as fait accompli without a process of genuine public debate and negotiation. And that looks like what we're gonna see from the Senate. A sudden rollout of a bill and a line of defenders who are willing to say anything in the media and town halls. These bills need periods of careful public analysis so that folks can truly understand what they mean and what we're trading for what. Looking at the AHCA, the Century Foundation explained that for each $1 in spending for affordable health care is matched by $4 in tax breaks for the pharmaceutical industry, $5 in tax breaks for health savings accounts that disproportionately benefit high-income people, $18 in tax breaks for the health insurance industry, and $29 on tax breaks for people with incomes above $200,000. Ultimately, the CBO projects that the federal government would save $119 billion if the AHCA made it into law in the version that was passed by the House. Is that savings worth those $23 million uninsured? For reference, the President's proposed budget spikes military funding by $469 billion. Where do we want our tax dollars going? All right, that's it for the news roundup. Uh, now let's get to our featured guests. First up, we got William Niehaus. He's an assistant professor of PM&R at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. It's also known as the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. Bill focuses on neurorehabilitation, similar to myself. And also similar to me, Bill is the social media editor of the Purple Journal, PM&R. That's the official journal of AAPM&R, the professional organization that broadly represents and serves physiatrists. I, of course, am serving a similar role for the ACRM's Archives Journal. 
Bill and I frequently interact over Twitter. Both of us seem to be fairly heavy Twitter users. Bill, would you characterize yourself as a Twitter addict? I'm afraid I may qualify. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. So late at night, can't sleep, pull up the Twitter profile, see what people are talking about. Um, I think it's just a great way to communicate online, both professionally and then to get information. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, that, that's my that's my kind of view as well. I mean, it's 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 great, but it's dangerous. It certainly can be a time sink. Yes, yes, it can. I've uh, I've done some tricks though. So on my web browsers, I have only allotted myself to be on those sites for fifteen to twenty minutes a given day, and then the site blocks itself. So I can only uh, oh, that's be on there brilliant. So yeah, I might have to look into that. All right. Well, uh, the first topic uh, that we're going to talk about two topics with you today is uh, a new free uh, charity clinic that uh, you have helped launch uh, there in Denver, Colorado, focused on folks uh, without uh, insurance uh, and who have significant disabilities there in the Denver area. Of course, a problem everywhere, uh, one that I'm certainly desperately worried, and you may be as well, too, with current efforts towards the second uh phase of healthcare reform, as it were, this time uh, led by the, uh, the GOP and our current president, and there's some troubling issues surrounding that. I did write about this uh, clinic, the uh, uh, Colorado Rehabilitation Services Volunteer Project, in my CNN column um, a few weeks ago, and I uh, was glad to be able to feature it uh, in, in that the course of that column, and I wanted to kind of delve into it a little bit more deeply with you, Bill. I understand that uh, this clinic began in Houston. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So um, one of the current physicians uh, at Craig Hospital is uh, Jeff Berliner, and he was originally in Texas at TIER as one of the spinal cord injury docs. And he, along with some of the professionals and the residents there, uh, formed a RSVP uh, clinic there. And... When Jeff took the position at Craig Hospital, I was one of the first residents he worked with, and he kept talking about this free clinic he had formed in Texas, and our kind of social justice bugs were kind of aligned together, and we decided to put together a similar type clinic here in Denver, Uh, and that was about two years ago. And uh, yeah, it's interesting to note that it's, it's taken two years. Of course, uh, you guys are, are busy in between the institutions that are affiliated with it, have a lot going on as well. I mean, some of it, I'm sure if everybody could devote full time to it, it would have been shorter. But tell me about some of the, the challenges and even getting this launched off the ground. Sure. So um, some of the biggest hurdles that we faced was, one, becoming our own tax-free 501c3 uh, organization. We really wanted to create a clinic that was affiliated but not necessarily beholden to an overarching system of care um, so that we could treat the patients uh, that we chose and seem to benefit from our services and kind of steer our own ship. So that was by far the longest process, and we were able to partner with a um, local Boulder uh, public accounting and lawyer firm that was able to help put our packet together for application. Um, And just that that whole process of clarifying questions with the IRS took probably four to six months before we finally received our own designation letter. And that was our biggest hurdle. 
Is there something special or different about setting up a, kind of a, a healthcare uh, 50C3 versus something in another field? Yeah, so um, if you really want to dive into the tax code, you can look through things, and most clinics are what they consider hospital-based or or medical-based organizations, and there is a tendency to potentially not approve those as being their own 501c3 tax-designated entity, Um, because ideally, people and patients and the government wants you to go to uh, a real, not, not to say that our clinic isn't real, but a fully functioning hospital or physician's office for your medical care. And they want to protect patients and possible clients from um, other kind of entities. Uh, One of the stipulations we had to have in our application is that we would treat uh, no patients with active insurance. They had to be uninsured. And sometimes we run into this battle as healthcare providers of the underinsured. um, And that was initially a population we were thinking about targeting, but to become our own entity and our own organization, they had to be uninsured patients. You can't treat a Medicare or Medicaid patient and not bill for service, to my understanding. Yeah, some interesting restrictions there. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the if you broaden the definition to folks who are underinsured, uh, that, that it certainly includes many of the people who are routinely being treated by the University of Colorado and Craig and everybody else. Uh, it's a a growing problem, um, and uh, but but certainly this is a obviously a, a very needy population that, that you focused on here, and you mentioned in, in particular uh, patient selection, really to kind of make sure that you're you know treating folks who you can really add something to. How do you filter and 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 select so that really your limited time in the clinic is maximized with that? Sure. So, I mean, our overall mission is we're, we're really dedicated to providing outstanding real rehabilitative care that maximizes independence, wellness, and community participation for those uninsured patients that have had some pretty specific catastrophic injuries. So brain injury, stroke, spinal cord injury, and amputation. And we really focused our efforts in those populations based on the medical professionals that have, were a part of forming the clinic. And then our, how we get patients into the clinic is we have contacts with the case management and social work groups at the various surrounding hospitals because uh, a lot of times those diagnoses end up being hospitalized first, kind of like that's their first triage pool uh, before they enter the outpatient sector. And we give them a referral form. And on that referral form, it lists contact information and basic things about the patient, but then also encourages the uh, case manager or social worker or care coordinator to confirm that the patient truly doesn't have insurance before referring them to us. Um, The way our clinic is currently structured, we can grow by two patients or have two new kind of onboarding patient evaluations per clinic day. Um, So we kind of have this triage pool and we have a a list of patients that we're hoping to bring in and um, similar to most acute rehab uh, places, we we try to target the people that we can help the most, whether that's with equipment, whether that's with learning skills and things um, of that nature. Uh, For example, we have a spinal cord injury patient that was in the same wheelchair for the last five years and needed some optimization of that, needed to optimize his bowel and bladder routine a little bit because things had changed slightly. And then also had uh, 
residual stoma from a prior tracheostomy that we've been able to partner with an ENT group to potentially have fixed as well. Um, so really kind of targeting who needs us the most and targeting our services towards them first while still trying to care for people long term after they've kind of been enrolled in our clinic. And there's so many unique challenges when we talk about a, a PM&R uh, preclinic. Uh, really one of them is the fact of the, the durable medical equipment you mentioned with the spinal cord injury patient, the, the fact that they needed a, a new wheelchair and so forth, and obviously there may be an upcoming surgical procedure. You know, PM&R is, you know, remains an interdisciplinary field. We need to pull from other fields of medicine as well. Obviously, you have all the, the therapy disciplines there also. But, uh, you know, many, many free clinics are focused on, you know, preventative services and primary care. When it comes to PM&R and integrating that DME aspect of it, uh, that, that's uh, fairly unique and, and a challenge as, as well there. Uh, I understand that uh, you have kind of uh, integrated uh, with, a, with a DME charity there. Right. Uh, so there are several kind of um, like DME closet organizations, not closet in the sense that um, they're secret, but closet in the fact they kind of have a storeroom of donated equipment that uh, we have contact with uh, in case one of our uh, patients needs a particular device or walker or wheelchair for kind of basic DME needs. And then we have kind of uh, associations and affiliations with some of the local DME providers here. So uh, there's been several different prosthetists that have been um, involved in their clinic and come out to the clinic for some of our amputee patients. Uh, there's also some wheelchair providers that have been able to come out and assist with uh, whether it's adjusting a chair or adding a new piece on an existing chair or uh, optimizing a seat cushion with a little bit of modification here and there to make it functional for that person. And we've been really, really lucky that uh, most people we talk to about this in kind of the PM&R or rehabilitation field, like this is a great way for them to kind of give back to the community that they're serving on a day in and day out basis without that financial piece. And it's, it's a, as much as it's good for the patients, it also feels good as a provider to provide this all-encompassing care that sometimes we wish we could in our typical clinical practice. So where does the team come from? Can any rehab professional in the city drop in on the RSVP clinic to help out when they have the time? So our, our clinic treatment teams, there's two of them, and they consist of professionals from physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, pharmacy, rehab physicians, rehab nurses, uh, case management, social work, and then a psychologist or chaplain. And uh, that whole team is who onboards the patient on that first day. And we really kind of dive in and try and evaluate what are all the services and needs that that person has. And at the end of that clinic day, we set up kind of a plan. So here are the things we would like you to work on between now and the next clinic day. And then here are the things we plan on working on at the next clinic day. So they have a sense of what to expect when they return. And then on there, we also kind of indicate how many clinic sessions do we really expect them to need to kind of uh, achieve those goals that they first set with us on that first evaluation. Um, they're always welcome to probably come back into the clinic at some point, but our goal is to try and really target the big things that's going to make a big improvement in their functional lives and uh, work on that over a series of months. And then, I mean, they're always going to be our patient, but try to really focus our care um, 
to what will benefit them the most. That That's great. And that, and that really, again, sounds like an advantage of an independent organization that you can really, to some extent, uh, pick and choose where you know you're going to get the most bang for your buck and can kind of operate a little bit differently than a comprehensive health organization has to do. Um, so I, I do appreciate that aspect as well. Now, in terms of uh, the, the days that are offered, currently I understand it's just started up. Uh, you all have had a couple of sessions so far, I believe. It's happening on uh, Sunday mornings. Can you tell me about kind of the frequency and, and how you expect maybe to, to ramp that up over time? Sure. Our first clinic day was on uh, April 2nd, and it's the first Sunday of the month from 8 a.m. to noon at Craig Hospital. So we've had uh, April, May, and then our next one is June 4th. Um, and we continue to have it that first weekend or first Sunday of the month at Craig um, we're not only trying to balance the uh, needs of the patients, but also we want to make sure we're not burning out our therapists and volunteers either, um, because if it's too much of a commitment, we don't want people to feel necessarily burdened to come and volunteer for us either. Um, and it's, it's so much fun. And it's also great too, as you mentioned before, because our documentation is really what we want to pass on to that next team member that's going to take their care on at the next clinic visit. Um, we don't need to fill in all the bubbles that sometimes we as providers feel like we're stuck doing to maximize billing and coding issues. It's really just what the patient needs. What are we doing to help them? And what are we going to do next? Yeah, that must, must be a, a nice uh, liberating change uh, somewhat. And uh, one, one advantage of doing this for the, for the provider in particular. Bill, RSVP is a nonprofit organization, so how can listeners that are so motivated donate to the cause? RSVP Clinic uh, now is also on PayPal, uh, so you can find us with our email address, coloradorsvpclinic at gmail.com, and we're also on Amazon Smile, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, just search for us, and um, if you don't know what Amazon Smile is, it's essentially Amazon but you go to the smile.amazon page and you type in a particular charity you would like to support and a percentage of your purchase from Amazon goes to that, that charity from Amazon. It's a great program. And Bill, proving this is a comprehensive podcast, not just focused on the archives, uh, we're gonna delve into a paper from the Purple Journal, the journal that you represent as a social media editor. Uh, you've written a paper on uh, informatics and technology and resident education, uh, a hot topic, uh, a big topic, as, as is proven by the paper. It's kind of a comprehensive overview uh, of some of the many uh, uh, issues that, that uh, every program who is endeavoring to train the next generation of physicians, not just in, in PM&R, but uh, throughout the whole range of medical specialties, really needs to think about comprehensively how they deal with uh, our information technology in general and uh, how we um, manage information. It's a, it's a big task. I, and reading this paper too, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, it's not just, it's not just medicine, it's, it's every field to a certain extent. And, and in the course of educating residents, it's important they know kind of where to get good information, how to remain abreast over the course of their career. Um, and of course, we don't know how things may may change in, in future years, but 
my my wife who teaches uh, history is continuously, you know, kind of dismayed about folks' research skills and, and that type of thing. Hopefully people who've graduated medical school and made it on to residency are a little bit better with regards to kind of using accurate sources of information and that type of thing. But that's kind of part of this as well, kind of thinking about you know, the education process and how programs organize their information into, you know, wikis and databases and so forth. Kind of tell me why you decided to, to write this paper. This is a particular uh, strong interest of, uh, of yours, I imagine, as an educator yourself. Yeah, it is an interest, and uh, I've done a previous piece on iPad use in resident education uh, through PM&R as well, and um, some of the editors felt like it was time to do a piece on this, and I... Uh, got volunteered and was willing and more than happy to do it um, because it is an interest and it, it I feel like information technology electronic health records and just the overall advance of tech in our lives is something that frequently people resist and or not resist but are hesitant to adopt and um, I've always been an early adopter and excited by technology and it just it's a great fit and I love how um, information technology and, and is so much more readily available to our trainees and helping them get to the point where they're confident in the sources they're looking at and having entire textbooks and journal historical data in the palm of their hand with a smartphone is just incredibly exciting for me. Um, and I know a lot of providers, especially and residents, are frustrated by their electronic health record and how to do certain tasks, but there's a lot of things that technology can do for us and make our job easier and help us, like, for example, talk with patients and have their imaging up on a bedside computer and show them the brain lesion or the spinal cord lesion or the stroke or the reason they're in the hospital, I, I feel is very empowering and helpful to my practice and not so detrimental as sometimes it's viewed. Yeah, I personally use a computer on wheels and find it uh, very efficient to be able to not only go and and do my documentation, but, you know, uh, as you're well aware, I mean, constantly over the course of rounds, you're being interrogated uh, by the patient family about this, that, or the other, and unless your uh, brain is uh, some uh, some type of uh, incredible uh, memory data bank with uh, photographic uh, uh, capabilities, it's useful to have a computer right there to go ahead and, and look that stuff up and go ahead and place orders and uh, certainly show people imaging I found uh, very uh, very useful. Some institutions are, are using kind of tablet computers uh, as well. I find those a little bit more cumbersome than just going and having to have the full laptop on, on wheels. Uh, yeah, so we have a computer on wheels and then sometimes I also carry my tablet that has a keyboard depending on where we're at. Um, and then when all of our rooms have a workstation on wheels inside the room for the nurses to use and interact with um, like medications and things with the patient. So we don't necessarily have one we bring around with us, but one of the team members logs on to that in-room computer and is able to, like you said, put in orders, help work on their note, show the patient imaging, and make sure we're working with accurate information. Excellent. Uh, so you mentioned patient portals and a variety of institutions are, are starting different forms of patient portals. I mean, those have been around for several years now, but uh, increasingly becoming uh, popular. Um, and also the paper talks about uh, texting and some of the issues surrounding that. Of course, enormously efficient in a clinical atmosphere. Uh, I remember, you know, I guess as a medical student, starting kind of prior to, to texting becoming a big thing and just the 
the time lags with regards to the uh, to the to the paging and the, and the, all the telephone calls need to be in the same place at the same time, I guess, or have have a minute at the same time as somebody else. It's still important to have telephone calls, but to relay quick bits of information, just find out, hey, have you seen that patient, or you know, kind of, what do you think? Is it serious or not? And they can answer when they're available. It's enormous boon. But uh, there are some uh, dangers, certainly, with regards to texting uh, and uh, HIPAA compliance and so forth. Um, how, are, how are you guys uh, handling that at the University of Colorado? So we do have uh, multiple ways that we can communicate via kind of text, uh, electronic text-based information. So there is a messaging option in our inherent EPIC. Um, that is also serves as a way for outpatients to communicate to us so they can send us uh, an email through a patient portal to the provider that they can then respond to. It's also a nice way to electronically communicate in a HIPAA secure format uh, with other providers. So like maybe one of my neuro-oncology patients, I can send a message to the neurosurgery clinic, to the neuro-oncology clinic in their primary care based on my last visit and kind of help us uh, kind of open those lines of communication for that patient in those complex questions. Um, we also, our email, um, it's less preferred in some ways for you know, very pure patient information, but it's, it's another means that we do utilize occasionally. Um, there's also a text paging system that we can communicate back and forth or in that matter too, we can text page a whole group. So I can text page the entire PT department if I have kind of a, hey, we need to get a PT visit in for this person to get them to our rehab unit. Can does someone have a second to come up and do a quick eval? And then also our resident and physician team, we use an inherent HIPAA secure texting function from the Amion app that's available on both Android and iPhone. It's HIPAA secure. It's routed kind of through the Doximity login information. So if you have a Doximity account, you can have a Amion account. Um, it's also how our institution lists the call schedule and who to contact for each uh, discipline. So if you want cardiology, you can look it up on that app as well. And it's great. We use it for group tasks, especially on the consult service. So maybe in the morning we set up that plan where the attendee is going to see this person, the resident's going to see this person, and then in the afternoon after the second attending's done with clinic, they'll target this one. Um, and then if someone happens to see a new one, new consult pop up, that seems most like appropriate to get in and see sooner than later, they can send that message HIPAA secure, so including patient name and information to the group and say, I've changed my plan, I'm going here, I'll see this one next. Or I saw this one and they're really appropriate, which we didn't expect, let's get them upstairs. And it's a great way to keep us all on the same page and moving around the hospital uh, without the cumbersome need to page and call and try and find time when you're both by a phone. Yeah, it's just amazing how much more efficient it is. But yeah, it's important to be deliberate about how you go about doing it, uh, as it sounds like your institution is. And uh, the paper certainly delves into to social media as well. I mean, there, there are uh, huge positives, also potential pitfalls with regards to social media too. Uh, how, what's your kind of general view on uh, the importance of being engaged in social media uh, as a physician and what people should watch out for? Sure. So I, th I think it's a good thing to be obviously I'm a social media editor for the journal, but 
I think it's a good thing to be online and have an online professional presence. Um, it's a great way to network. I mean, I never would have, outside of a, a random interchange possibly at a conference, would I have bumped into you, Ford, and we wouldn't have had all those conversations on Twitter that we've had. And it really opens up the, the door outside of your institution, which I think is very empowering. Um, it also allows you to uh, steer the conversation um, of a given disease process. So whether it's low back pain, stroke, amputation, burn care, um, you're able to engage a wider audience than just your professional uh, group outside of physiatry, outside of a therapy discipline, you're really engaging with a larger community and helping lead that conversation and put out evidence-based care that patients are typically starving for and want. Um, it's also a great way for researchers, um, especially early researchers, to get their stuff out there. Um, you don't have to, um, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit online and you can follow along that like some of our female physiatrists or female physicians aren't always represented well in kind of our awards and things like that as a discipline. And this gives them the ability to share their work in a larger audience without a filter of uh, overarching organization that uh, whether it's intentional or not is somewhat uh, is they still, to what's in the purple journal, what's in the blue or the archives, it just opens up all those doors and spreads that information wider and can, it's just, I don't know, very exciting for me. The other thing I do is I use that program Hootsuite. And what's great about Hootsuite or Twitter, it, the app itself, is to distill that information. So if you notice, like, uh, myself and Ford, we follow lots and lots and lots of people. Um, and sometimes when you first enter that social media atmosphere, it can feel very overwhelming. Uh, you follow a lot of people, you look at your home feed, and it's just full of not only ad-supported information, but all of these people you just followed, and it's hard to distill out what you want to see at a given moment. So you can do things by creating lists or uh, saving searches with particular hashtags to help filter that conversation or that lens that you're looking at at a particular moment in time. So whether that's like hashtag physiatry or hashtag neuro rehab or hashtag TBI rehab or a search you've crafted to include traumatic brain injury, stroke, and some other things, uh, or a list of um, academic journals that you follow or are interested in, and then you're able to kind of uh, click on those lists or click on those save searches and distill that information down into a more digestible piece of information um, based on your time at that moment and what you're looking for, as opposed to an overwhelming home feed that can just seem mind-boggling to try and wrap your head around. Sure. And I'm sure you uh, you may as well be using this too. I really enjoy just on the National Library of Medicine PubMed site how you can plug in different searches and get daily or weekly updates with regards to that because you mentioned seeing what people are talking about on social media, but it's nice to create some refined searches about clinical questions that you have and kind of get uh, proactively pinged by, uh, by PubMed about that is really nice. 
Yep, and you, you like RSS feeds are also a great way, or Google searches or saved Google Scholar updates and things. There's lots of different ways to approach that uh, and different uh, platforms that you can use to filter that information and notify you during you know a certain period of time. And then there's a, even a neat uh, a tablet app, and I think it's for the smartphone as well, called Docfin that you can set up uh, keyword searches and phrases to update you uh, within your, uh, you can specify to specific journals you wanna know if there's an article posted in these 10 journals about uh, brain injury, it'll uh, ping you about that as well. Uh, briefly, uh, I'm curious about your, your views on social media and patients. So um, I certainly have uh, colleagues who are open to you know accepting friend requests or vice versa with uh, folks they treated clinically or their family and uh, certainly I'm very aware in the rehabilitation environment because I'm constantly seeing updates being shared to me by nurses and case managers about how people are doing on Facebook and everything uh, I kind of still have a policy myself that I that I don't really accept those friend requests from patients and families I feel like there needs to be some type of professional barrier there on things like Facebook in particular, it's occurred to me that maybe I should start just a professional side uh, Facebook page and I might do that. Uh, how do you handle that and how do you think people should handle that? Um, sure. So I think, I think it's good to kind of separate church and state for your uh, online presence. Um, the way it kind of worked out for me is my family and friends and my uh, social like day-to-day, uh, -day, what I like to do on the weekends, uh, are predominantly Facebook users. So that's kind of one end of my life. And my Twitter profile, um, not many of those people are on Twitter. Um, or if they are on Twitter, they're, they're not very active on it. So I was able to, my Twitter profile is kind of my professional social media presence. And my Facebook is kind of my personal side. Um, I'm not opposed to necessarily patients following me on Twitter, but I definitely don't engage in patient-specific information on that platform at all. I really route it through either the patient portal, uh, through our electronic health record, or over the phone or actual clinic visits. Um, but I really haven't run into that problem um, necessarily, where a patient's really trying to dive into my personal life. Who knows? Uh, but I think kind of keeping those two things separate is, is good and worth doing. Um, and like, like I really kind of view it as two separate versions of me. They're both me, but uh, there's kind of the professional version of me that is Twitter. And then there's the Facebook side that has, you know, photos of my kids and things like that. I don't necessarily want to be known or seen across the wide sphere of social media. Certainly, yeah, um, and yeah, folks need to understand about you know all social media, but you know certainly Twitter in particular. Everything you you say on uh, that platform and certainly many of others is widely broadcast uh, to the world, and uh, you really need to uh, to triple think uh, whatever it is you say uh, before you say it uh, on apps like that. So, Bill, it's a it's a a big paper. I encourage folks to read it. It's an excellent overview uh, of the field and and the challenges of uh, of managing information while attempting to to teach the next generation of physicians. And it's incredibly important. 
Um, so I uh, enjoyed our, our time together today. I think this uh, makes for a very interesting uh, uh, podcast listen, hopefully, for everybody who's out there. Uh, Bill, thank you for joining me on the RehabCast. Yeah, and if people want to reach out to myself, my Twitter handle is N-H-A-U-S-M-D, InhouseMD. Um, and then I'll also be presenting a technology in the outpatient clinical practice at the PM&R conference in Denver this year. It'll be on Saturday morning. If you want to come up and talk about tech and training and your practice, that'd be great. Excellent. Okay, fantastic. it's time to delve into our featured article ripped straight from the July issue of the archives of PM&R. We're talking about the first powered exoskeleton trial in multiple sclerosis. And as you'll hear, there's a plethora of important hard-won insights here. Turns out it's not so simple to slap on a device designed for people with spinal cord injury to people with MS. Joining me now on the rehab cast is Dr. Alan Kozlowski. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at Michigan State University. He's the Director of Outcomes Research at the John F. Butzer Center for Research Innovation at Mary Freebed Rehabilitation Hospital there in Michigan. Now, Al, you recently made a, a big move. Uh, you've been based in uh, New York City at Mount Sinai, and uh, you decided to uproot yourself and uh, come to Mary Freebed in Michigan State. Uh, uh, what are your, your plans there in Michigan, and, and why the move? The uh, move really um, uh, happened because the, the position at Michigan State and Mary Freebed uh, offered me an opportunity to um, go back to the my real research interest in modeling uh, rehabilitation outcomes. Um, that's the work that I was doing in my postdoc at the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago before I moved to New York. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Mary Freebed was uh, uh, had just started up a, a research department, and um, they saw a future. Uh, using longitudinal models to evaluate uh, individual level patient outcomes. And that's uh, where my postdoc work was. So it was a really good fit for uh, my my long-term research interests. Excellent. Well, very good. And a very important area of research, uh, particularly given all, all the efforts surrounding uh, trying to streamline our healthcare system in general and certainly get the most uh, bang for the buck. Now, with regards to this uh, particular clinical problem, you also have a lot of expertise in uh, exoskeleton research. And uh, this uh, paper and our July issue represents uh, the first, uh, certainly albeit uh, small, as first trials typically are, uh, application of a powered exoskeleton in multiple sclerosis. Um, you, you chose for this trial, certainly everybody's limited to a certain extent. Uh, typically folks don't have all three or uh, other research uh, exoskeletons to do multiple comparisons, uh, certainly on a small initial trial like this, but you did, uh, choose the, uh, the rewalk, uh, device and, uh, you had, uh, access to, I believe, uh, exo as well. Could you just kind of outline for us, um, uh, you know, how you think of uh, Rewalk versus Indigo versus XO and why you ended up choosing uh, Rewalk for this initial trial. Right. Um, so the three devices um, uh, all have um, 
you know, some similarities. They're all, you know, uh, powered at the hips and knees with passive ankles and and um, uh, adjustable for a variety of uh, fit characteristics. But they do also have some unique um, characteristics that uh, when it comes to matching a device to a person, there's probably going to be some overlap amongst devices, but there may be some situations where one device is more suited to um, uh, people with a given level of uh, ability or disability um, than others. The reason for selecting the rewalk was actually a pragmatic one. Uh, when we first submitted the, um, the grant application, we had proposed to, to trial both the XO and the rewalk with our, our sample. And the um, the reviewers had thought that was a bit ambitious and uh, suggested that in a resubmission we uh, choose one device and start there. It looks like the reviewers are, are right because it's not uh, it's not too shocking to say this was a challenging study. It looks like it, it was, um, and uh, yeah, that said, I think we um, we achieved most of our of our aims there were a couple places where um, the data collection was difficult uh, the uh, particularly around um, uh, measuring spasticity was a, a challenge because we needed to have a clinician uh, come in before and after the sessions that we were going to measure spasticity and um, you know sometimes their their, their schedules didn't uh, uh, comply uh, or didn't align with ours, and you know we might get a pre-session measurement, but not a post, or the the clinician might have uh, gotten caught up and not been able to make it to, to take a pre-session measurement. So that was probably the thing that was most difficult for us to get consistently. And then um, in the uh, the non uh, exoskeleton uh, outcomes. Um, we didn't get quite as many people who were functional walkers uh, enter the study as we thought. And, and of the ones that we did get in, a number of them withdrew along the way. So we uh, didn't right. end up with enough people to even do um, you know, individual level uh, uh, analyses. Yeah, it really reflects a lot of the challenges that are kind of innate in the, in the MS population, certainly with regards to uh, the fact that it's kind of not as clean to some extent as an SCI population, which can, you know, uh, be a little bit more discreet uh, in level of function. In terms of your inclusion for the study, you were using the, uh, of course, the expanded disability status scale scores ranging from 5 to 7.5. Uh, so that, that's a fair amount of uh, functional difference between a 5 and a 7.5, someone who can, you know, really just barely take uh, a few steps at all versus, you know, somebody who can uh, theoretically walk up to 200 meters or so without uh, uh, any assistance or rest. Uh, so that, that's kind of a, a wide group there, and it sounds like of that group you got folks who were, who were more on the disabled end in this trial. That's correct, yeah. And, and um we did have uh, a few people who were not able to take any steps whatsoever. Um, so yeah, we really got uh, 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 more to the, the disabled end. And then um, the more uh, able that range, 
we did not get as many people as we thought we might, so that was uh, that was kind of interesting. It would have been uh, interesting to see some people who are are you know, maybe able to walk but really don't have any endurance. And uh, we did have a few people enter the study um, at that level, and uh, um, the you know the the thing that we didn't uh, actually only one of those people finished the 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 entire protocol. You know, it's really a clearly a feasibility trial that that needed to be done because you found a lot of feasibility issues for for real. I mean, in terms of kind of those initial. Uh, 13 participants. Obviously, some were uh, were screened out, but uh, you know, bottom line, only five people participated or were able to do more than 20 sessions. These are three sessions, ideally uh, three sessions a week over eight weeks. And you describe a number of interesting problems that that I suppose uh, a clinician might expect to some extent with the MS population, but are interesting to think about with exoskeletons in particular. So, for example, if you miss a session and then try to do catch-ups, you know, one day after the next, uh, you actually saw a decline, right? Yeah, yeah, we, uh, uh, some people found it really difficult to do back-to-back -back sessions, and then those same people, if they missed, you know, uh, another day and, and had four or five days in between sessions, uh, showed some regression as well. So it was, uh, I think with particularly when you get into the higher ends of the the disability scale that um, the the timing the frequency of sessions is going to be a really critical factor to you know that Goldilocks zone not too much not too little is is going to be a critical factor in dosing yeah and you mentioned that you would have liked some kind of some more time to play with as well rather than just that set eight weeks because people are are variable in terms of the symptoms that they're having on a on a given day or a given week and uh, if you have kind of more golden hours to choose from where they're going to get in the exoskeleton is that is that going to make a difference uh, absolutely there were a, a number of people who finished the study who wanted to keep going and it would have been um, uh, really interesting to see if you know if we could have uh, um, done a, an initial phase of screening people who are, are capable of learning to use the device and then take those people for you know maybe another uh, eight weeks and um, you know that might be where we start to see um, changes around uh, um, walking ability outside the device or or some of the other quality of life metrics that we, we used. And I suppose on, on a philosophical level, when you're talking about something like an exoskeleton anyway, I mean, certainly at this day and age in 2017, these are, remain extraordinarily expensive and resource intensive devices, whether owned by a facility or certain by, certainly by the individual. It's not something that can be applied to just willy-nilly to everybody who wants it. So trials, to some extent, real world, uh, perhaps need to be as selective as the realistic application of these devices, you know, only the people who are the most uh, motivated uh, and meet, you know, the, the key criteria to be able to participate and have the transportation and everything and meet all those criteria for which in the real world they would even have access to this device. That's what the, the trial design should look like. Absolutely. Um, one of the interesting um, uh, pieces of, of information around transportation and access um, that uh, you know, we thought we had done a pretty good job of, of screening people in, yet we did have some people who um, withdrew 
because of access and those weren't necessarily the uh the, the people who are traveling the farthest to get to our center so there you know there is there are some other um motivational factors and and things that will will weigh in and somebody who's traveling quite a distance might uh, uh make extra efforts to get in and then other people who are, are a little bit closer um you know may not uh, the and particularly once they get into the device the yeah and find out that it's not quite as easy as just standing up and going that there is a learning curve um to using the the any of the exoskeletons that um the you know the the you know, sort of the realities of the opportunity may start to uh, um outweigh the, the 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 you know the shiny new object and the sort of the promise of of the potential to walk sure and you know overall you did rate kind of the just general learnability is relatively high given that the five people who were walking and uh, and completing more than 20 sessions were at least able to have one session where they needed little or, or no assistance. So as long as you're able to, the, those folks who made it through the gauntlet and you know were able to do all the sessions did have some success. That, exactly. And you know, again, I think all of those people, if they were able to carry on, would you know continue to to become more efficient with with walking. And I think that that would be an interesting next step. Would be to see if if those people. Yeah, you know, what kind of uh, benefits might they be able to get from routine walking? Mm-hmm. Uh, I suppose it, it's no surprise to see that uh, that, that standing uh, was was relatively easy for folks, but uh, the the sitting is is quite the challenge. And the rewalk device, only three of the the final five were able to complete that uh, with little to no assistance. That actually was, a, a, I think, one of the interesting and, and potentially really important findings. Uh, again, it's, I would call that a qualitative finding because it's you know, based on our, our observations using a, a, a rating scale. But the, the thing that was, I, I think is really different about uh, people with MS versus the, the people with spinal cord injury we'd seen in our other trials is the pattern of weakness. And many of the people that we had in our trial had some upper extremity weakness, and it tended to be more proximal, that they had less control around the shoulder girdle than they did at the hands. And in order to do the sitting maneuver with any of the exoskeletons, if you're using crutches to to sit, you have to be able to swing the crutches behind you um, and prop yourself up while you're waiting for the device to to uh, move into the the sitting maneuver, and that was the 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 problem that that um, uh, many of the people with upper extremity weakness had was being able to to safely get into that um, position where they're propped up with the crutches behind them and hold themselves while they're waiting for the device. So I think that was one of the other things that uh, the, you know, the, and the EDSS scale doesn't really address the upper extremity um, uh, impairments. So I think that's something that um, would be important to look at as people are coming into the study. Um, you, you can certainly do a sitting maneuver with a, a walker easier than you can, you know, at least with the, the, the EXO, than, um, than with the crutches. But 
you know, if if you're going to do that, then you know you're looking at having either either walking with a walker, which is not as uh, efficient uh, a way to use the exoskeleton, or you're looking at having multiple devices to do those different maneuvers. So I think that's a, that's going to be an interesting challenge for the the device manufacturers to look at if they're um, looking at. Uh, uh, adapting their devices for um, MS populations. Yeah, and hopefully they will. I mean, it's a large and significant uh, population, and this study will will cert- surely get a fair amount of attention, uh, especially given since it's the first. And, and indeed, you're finding out a lot of good practical information here, like any good uh, first attempt. Um, there, there was, you know, again some some of those good qualitative improvements uh, for the people showing you know, improvements in their in their posture. One of them uh, was getting a bit better with their transfers, and at least a couple of them were were quite eager to to continue on with with the walking. So, and again, this is a again a very variable population. I think had there been you know, a larger pool to choose from, and kind of thinking about that that next trial, we're probably going to see. Uh, more such qualitative benefits as well, I would expect. Um, you know, you were talking about some of the uniqueness with regards to the upper extremity impairments that are that are seen in, in MS and, uh, and how that's going to affect their use of an exoskeleton. Of course, uh, you know, fatigue is is a major uh, issue and, and plays in with regards to motivation, perhaps continuation with the trial uh, as well. Um, and, and so there's just a, a lot of unique aspects with regards with regards to MS. One thing that, that interested me in particular that you discussed was the lack of screening for, for cognitive impairments and kind of playing around with the idea, well, maybe uh, should you have? And that's interesting to me given I'm you know, brain injury focused uh, myself. Uh, it, it does strike me that, that there could be kind of some unseen uh, higher level deficits that uh, that, that could help kind of uh, distinguish uh, between different levels of patients with regards to potential uptake and uh, speed of learning and, and so forth. Um, are, are you thinking about in, in a future trial employing some type of, uh, of cognitive screener? Um, I think that would be definitely be a consideration. Um, we probably did some informal screening through our, our enrollment process. The, uh, Dr. Fabian was our uh, neurologist on the study who um, was our, our point person for enrollment through the, um, the pardon me, the MS clinic. So, uh, you know, she had probably informally been um, uh, uh, looking at people's overall ability in addition to the specific tests that we were using. Um, but I think it would definitely be a consideration, particularly if you're looking, identifying uh, good candidates going forward. You know, like you said, research dollars are, are a scarce resource, but so are um, uh, insurance dollars or out-of-pocket dollars if you're going to spend money on that kind of a device. And uh, uh, but my uh, expertise is not in um, in cognitive function, so I would uh, uh, defer to somebody who's got more expertise in in terms of what type of um, screening or measurement that that you might want to do there. So you know it it is interesting work, important work. Now now again, you have made a, a career change and, and move um, from one part of the country to another and one institution from another uh, since this uh, work has been done. Uh, 
are you in particular going to be going forward uh, with further uh, work along this front? Um, I won't rule it out, but it's not the um, top of my priority list uh, at this particular time. Um, I, I still think there's a, a, a future for exoskeleton devices and more than just for the um, uh, population of people with spinal cord injuries. You know, I think there's some, there's some good work going on there now, you know, and even with the spinal cord injury literature, it's still what's out is still mostly small studies, and there's a, there were a few small n um, uh, randomized trials uh, on the on uh, stroke research with the um, uh, HAL device out of Japan, uh, but there are some larger trials going. Dr. Ann Spungen at the Bronx VA in New York has a, a larger trial going on, multi-center trial. Uh, so I think we're going to start seeing some interesting research come out there. And then uh, I would hope that uh, that the uh, researchers will um, pick up the, the baton and, and carry on looking at the um, other populations like uh, the uh, for, uh, people with MS. Yeah, I think yes. there's I think there's a lot of potential there. That one of the interesting things we had discussed when we were putting in the proposal or putting it together was the sort of the different um, long-term uh, uh, patterns of of the two conditions. You know, a spinal cord injury. You you've typically got a well, traumatic or sometimes a non-traumatic event that causes uh, uh, severe impairments that have a fairly rapid recovery phase, you know, about a year, give or take, for most people. And then they level off at, uh, uh, you know, depending on what, what domain of uh, functioning you're looking at, they'll level off at that uh, for the foreseeable future and then uh, take a different trajectory from that point. So if you're looking at mobility, once a person with spinal cord injury is determined to be suitable, for, you know, if you determine a, a particular device is suitable for a given person, that device is probably going to be a good fit for them for the foreseeable future. They might outgrow it if they actually get to be proficient and, and make some sort of functional gains because of it. But when you're looking at people with MS, they're on a, a deterior, generally a deteriorating trajectory for mobility and other other functions and the device that they get today might not be the device that's right for them tomorrow um, so the there's a and the the um, the point at which a person becomes uh, uh, might benefit from a device is much harder to define because of the gradual onset of, of loss, mobility loss or the the variable nature in the presentation of the the symptoms that you can have a person who's who who has a, a relapse and then goes into remission and they're okay for another year or five years. So the I think the the rationale for a prescription of a device is going to be different, and there may be opportunity for the device manufacturers to take a look at that progression in terms of how they design a device. 
and it might be that that somebody who's just starting to lose their ability to to walk as they're progressing through the 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 you know the five and the six of the the EDSS scale that they might only need some assistance uh, at the hip. So they might not need a fully exoskeleton that, you know, and, and if the, the, the manufacturers can look at modular designs that can be augmented as things change, then, you know, that might do two things. It, it could make the devices less expensive initially. And you can then potentially add on components or or beef up the the, the exoskeleton as the person um, progresses. But the given what we saw with both people in in our spinal cord injured trials and our and this this uh, uh, feasibility trial for people with MS is as people were learning and becoming more proficient with the device, they started gaining some other uh, motion control, like ability with transfers and and ability to, to sit or stand more upright and, and maintain um, more upright postures. And so it might be that if you can get in with a, a, a minimal assist, you know, the least amount of, of device and assistance necessary at an early stage of, of deterioration of mobility that you can keep the person going longer and you can keep them uh, using all the other postural muscles that they they still have wiring for and that might slow the 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 trajectory of, of deterioration whether people are having relapses or not so i think that there's a, a huge opportunity for that population yeah. So, so you've really, uh, yeah, I think those are a lot of important insights that, that hopefully everyone who is interested in, in applying this uh, to MS or, and are going to do those future trials are going to take to heart and consider. And hopefully maybe some of the device manufacturers are listening to this. We couldn't only use modular design for things like MS, but also other things like, you know, stroke and TBI, uh, you know, other neurological conditions where it's somewhat messier than uh, than the level uh, that one might get in a spinal cord injury. I think the concept of, of a modular design, if it can technically be, be achieved, would be very important. So Dr. Kozlowski, I, I thank you very much for joining me on this, this podcast. I think we got a lot of very useful uh, information even outside uh, the article, which of course I encourage our listeners to read as well. Uh, this again is you know, an, an important trial, you know, any uh, application. Uh, to a unique population of something uh, like this, and, and certainly something as kind of sexy as exoskeletons is going to get a lot of attention. And I think this trial deserves it. It, it is a difficult, it was a difficult trial clearly to, uh, to accomplish, but it was uh, designed in order to pick up on potential challenges to the application of this population. It clearly did that. Uh, and I think that uh, folks who read it closely will see a way forward to make the next steps that are going to positively benefit the MS population. So again, thank you very much for joining me today. All right, thank you. And that's it for this fourth edition of the Rehab Cast from the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Again, we hope that you're going to share the podcast with your colleagues. Most any app that you're listening to should have a share button. Uh, now, find us on Twitter at ArchivesPMR and find me on Twitter at FordVox. 
And be sure to email me at docvox at gmail.com if you have any feedback, any suggestions. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. Please join us again next month. This podcast is brought to you by ACRM, the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine. Don't miss their annual conference coming to Atlanta, October 2017, the largest rehabilitation research event in the world, and it's interdisciplinary. Visit acrm.org.